From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. First, lynx, then wolves, now wolverines. Colorado revisits plans to bring this rare, elusive member of the weasel family to the alpine tundra. We think this is a species that could just sort of hide away up in the high country and not upset the apple cart for too many industries that we have here in Colorado. But why now, and what are the challenges? Then, this Congress is going down in history as one of the least productive. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a sitcom, and everybody is just doing ridiculous acts (laughs) and trying to get on TV and not doing the work. Several lawmakers from Colorado share their views with our Washington, D.C. reporter. And an airline's pandemic gamble means hundreds of new jobs and a state-of-the-art training center in Denver. Colorado Public Radio brings you more. More voices, more context, more connection to the people and the stories across the state. I'm Carl Bielek, executive producer of Colorado Matters, and I'm excited to be part of the growth here at CPR News. When I say Colorado Matters, that's really what it's all about. I grew up in Colorado, and it's a privilege that we get to go beyond the headlines and delve into issues that impact lives, sharing the stories of the people who make our state the unique and vibrant place it is. Whether it's politics and policy, environment and discovery, or Colorado's thriving arts scene, our team is committed to delivering exceptional variety combined with insightful discussion. This kind of work is only possible because members do more than listen. Members choose to support the news and music on Colorado Public Radio. Join the community of support today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. First it was the lynx, then wolves, now wolverines, maybe the next species reintroduced here. Our Western Slope producer Tom Hess tells us about a plan to bring wolverines to the state's high alpine ecosystems. Wolverines are the largest terrestrial member of the weasel family. They're incredibly hard to find and max out at around 30 or 40 pounds. More than a decade ago, Colorado drafted a plan to reintroduce them in hopes of helping the species repopulate areas of the contiguous United States. Now Colorado is finishing updates to that plan and could one day bring the solitary creatures back to this state. But Jeff Copeland, a director with the Wolverine Foundation in Idaho, says they may want to hold off. There's many characteristics of the wolverine that make it, it's going to make it really difficult to reintroduce this animal. The primary one is the fact that the females are pregnant most of the winter, and you're going to have to try to deal with that. Secondly, they're very rare. Wherever you go to get your animals, it's going to have a detrimental effect on the population that they come out of. Copeland says another factor to consider is that we may be in the middle of a successful recovery and just not know it. Prohibitions on trapping the animals and better environmental protections have helped them regain a foothold in other states, and their recent listing as a threatened species could go even further. Overall, it's like, why do it? Because they're going to be there anyway. We're in the midst of watching this animal reoccupy its historical habitat. Why not let it do it on its own? I know that people want it now, and it may not occur naturally in in my lifetime or yours, but it will. Eventually, they'll make it, particularly Colorado. 
Wolverines can and will travel hundreds of miles. The last one confirmed in Colorado ventured down from the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. It traveled all the way up to North Dakota before it was shot by a rancher. Copeland says the species can make it here just fine if we take care of some of the hurdles along the way. If wolverines are going to make it down here, what's the likely route that they're going to take? Probably off the end of southeast Idaho, drop down into the Wasatch and Uintas, and then jump across through Dinosaur into, you know, maybe maybe the flat top again. So, but get into Colorado that way. So, what are potentially some of the barriers along that route that we could look at and address? What is the best things that we can do to encourage these animals to make it down here? If Colorado does get to the point of reintroducing the animals, it will be based on a newly updated plan produced by Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Unlike the voter-mandated wolf reintroduction, this plan was set in motion by CPW. Jake Ivan is a wildlife scientist with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I spoke with him about that plan and what it would mean to have wolverines in the state. Do you mind starting with just giving me the beginner's guide, the idiot's guide to wolverines in North America and maybe their history in Colorado? Yeah, so the the idiot's guide to wolverines in North America. Well, it's a... I guess first and foremost, it's a it's a native species. It's one that's been around forever, and its distribution is um, basically lives in uh, high latitude areas. Okay, so all across boreal Canada and into Alaska, and then importantly for our considerations, uh, its historical range did extend down the Rocky Mountains and the Cascades as well. So it it tends to live in places that get a lot of cold and a lot of snow, and it's very well adapted to exploit those types of uh, environments. And so that's where it lives. It lives at very low densities, even in places where wolverines are doing well. They're fairly rare. They have huge home ranges, and they generally just patrol those home ranges looking for uh, carcasses, things that have died for other reasons, and they sort of scavenge on those and and live this kind of uh, lonely existence up in the high country all throughout North America. Is there an animal maybe in Colorado or near Colorado that they might be analogous to, something that has that huge of a home range and is kind of that solitary? Yeah, there's a few close analogs. Uh, Canada lynx uh, is something that's sort of close, where you, you generally have animals that are solitary most of the year, uh, a male home range only overlaps maybe one or two females, and, and they're they're generally pretty large. So a Canada lynx home range is maybe 75 square kilometers, uh, but but wolverines are even a step above that. Um, their their home ranges are are up to five to eight times even that of of Canada lynx. So that would be the next closest analog. But wolverines are sort of in a class by themselves uh, when it comes to that. I have to imagine that makes it somewhat difficult to track and find out where they are and if they are somewhere. I suspect the mule deer people probably have an easier time keeping track of things <laughs> than you do. Yeah, it, it, in some sense, you're absolutely right. You know, it's it's obviously easier to keep track of and to count, you know, things that are more common. Uh, but honestly, we've been involved in a lot of survey work west-wide in the last many years. And one thing that you don't think of that's actually quite helpful is they do have such an, a great sense of smell and they're able to cover so much country that actually makes them relatively easy to sample and at least figure out if they're present or not. If you hang something dead on a tree and have a camera pointed at that, it isn't long before Wolverine, if, if they are in the area, are able to find that and you'll get photos and you can document presence and occupancy and distribution at least relatively easily because they're, they're fairly easy to detect if they're in the area. 
and the last one in Colorado was seen in, I want to say 2009. Is that right? Yes, there was a single male, a young male that had dispersed down from from the Tetons and, and made it all the way into Colorado and hung out here for a few years, um, sort of in the central mountains. It was seen many times in Rocky Mountain National Park, and that was around 2009, correct? Is there currently efforts to, you mentioned, you know, setting up a cam and keeping an eye on a carcass. Is there current efforts to do that in Colorado to see if there's any that we maybe don't know about, or is it generally agreed upon that there's probably not one in the state right now? Uh, the answer to that is, is both. There's general agreement that there's certainly not many, if any, in the state right now and participated recently in some of these west-wide surveys, putting out camera sets specifically for wolverines and wolverine habitat and, and haven't yet gotten any hits. Looking at that 2010 plan for reintroduction, when did that plan start to get talked about? Kind of how did that come to be? So starting in 1997, 1998, our agency had decided, you know, based on our mission as a wildlife agency, that we wanted to restore both Canada lynx and wolverines to Colorado. And so as time went on, we realized that, you know, doing both of those at the same time would be logistically pretty difficult. And so we chose to do Canada lynx first. And around 2009, 2010 is when the Canada lynx reintroduction program was wrapping up. We had released a bunch of animals. They had survived well. They had reproduced well. The population projection was projected to be at least stable, if not increasing. So we had just sort of declared success on the the lynx reintroduction. And that's when we sort of turned our attention back to trying to get wolverines restored in Colorado as well. Based on the lynx reintroduction, does that imbue a certain amount of confidence in how to introduce these solitary mercurial animals into Colorado? It does. Like I mentioned uh, already, you know, there are some similarities between lynx and wolverines. They're sort of rare, solitary, forest, carnivore kinds of species. So that does give us a bit of confidence, but they are, you know, different species. There's some important differences and, and wolverines present their own challenges for sure. When you draft a big uh, species reintroduction plan and it sits on the shelf for 10 years, is that something that's fairly shelf stable, so to speak? Or is that the sort of thing that would probably need a number of updates over the years? And what kind of updates would, would be in something like that? Yeah, the, the basic parts of that plan are still intact. The reasons that we want to do this in the history of the species in Colorado and all of those sorts of things uh, do have a longer shelf life. But you're correct in that, you know, a lot has changed since 2010, both in terms of the status of the species. Uh, there's a lot of new science in terms of what we know. Uh, we've learned a lot about what we might want to do and, and how to do it. And so that we've been working pretty hard, pretty diligently to update that thing for sure. Do you have an example of what are the things that you'd have to look at in terms of updates? There's a number of considerations in with respect to new science in case. So for example, on the winter recreation front, there's been some new studies out there that suggest that there may be some, some impacts of dispersed winter recreation on wolverines. And those impacts seem to scale with the amount of use. So they get to be more impactful with the more people and the more use. So that's, you know, something we need to consider. You know, a lot of the other things that are in a new version of the of plan are just, you know, fleshing out the details uh, in every respect in terms of where we might go to source animals, where exactly we might put them in Colorado, how exactly we might do that. I'm sure you guys don't have a set number, even if you did from the 2010 plan, I'm sure it probably needs revisions, but just given the range of these animals and the size of Colorado, can you give a sense for like how many a plan like this might consider introducing? 
Yeah, and that's one of the new things that we did include in this new plan. So we have uh, a population viability analysis in there to help us figure out, you know, how many animals might you want to put into Colorado and, and how well we project they might do. We've also gone through uh, several exercises to try to figure out, you know, how many Colorado might be able to hold. And the long story short there is we think between 100 and 100 and 80 or so. So let's say roughly 140. If you packed in all the wolverines in the Colorado that you could, uh, that's the kind of range that we're talking about. And is there a better sense on where than others? Obviously, we're talking high mountain ranges and you've got a couple of options at your disposal for that. Is there one that's maybe better than the other or a specific area that would be considered? You know, we've gone through the exercise of modeling and mapping wolverine habitat in Colorado, and there's a fair amount of it, over 30,000 square kilometers, which makes us actually the largest unoccupied block of habitat left in the lower 48. About a fifth of all the habitat in the lower 48 occurs in Colorado. And, and honestly, if you just took all of the high country uh, in Colorado above, say, nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet, that's more or less what we're talking about is wolverine habitat. We think this is a species that could just sort of hide away up in the high country and not upset the apple cart for too many industries that we have here in Colorado. Did the 2010 plan have a population to source from identified? You know, the, the, it, it hadn't really gotten that far. There was a, a few sort of generalities in my recollection that were made in that plan, but not nearly to the degree that we've gone through here with our current version of the plan. So uh, we've considered things like ecological similarity uh, as, as one big key to where we get these individuals from. So wolverines have such an extensive range that the actual habitat they occupy can be quite different depending on where you're at within their range. So we would, I think, high grade trying to get individuals from wolverines that live in mountainous areas and forested areas as opposed to out on the tundra where there are no trees. We would prioritize getting individuals from areas where cougars are part of the predators on the landscape because not everywhere there are wolverines are there cougars. Uh, we would also prioritize one of the main food sources for wolverines is marmots. So we would high-grade areas where marmots occur uh, as well. And again, that's not everywhere that wolverines occur. So we would consider ecological similarity in terms of where to source. And then the other thing we would consider too is genetic components as well. You want to select animals that have a high level of genetic diversity because we're going to be, you know, necessarily starting with a small population. We want that to be as diverse as possible to ward off any inbreeding effects as long as we can until that population begins to grow. What are the biggest challenges to a reintroduction effort like this? What are the kind of the top line issues that are circled as you look at this plan? You know, sort of the biggest overarching issue is no one's ever tried to reintroduce wolverines anywhere uh, in the world that we know of. So there's just a ton of of unknowns in terms of how hard or easy it might be and, and what's going to work and what's not going to work. So I would say, you know, front and center, that's the first thing is we're trying to attempting to do something here that no one's attempted to do previously. But, you know, some of the big issues beyond that is trying to figure out where to get them from. You know, we, we listed out some of the biological uh, things we're looking for in terms of ecological similarity to Colorado and having you know, good genetic diversity. But, but also, you know, we haven't had any conversations yet. There'll be a lot of logistical concerns in terms of finding willing partners uh, in Canada or Alaska to help us trying to figure out which of those populations might be able to sustain offtake, uh, et cetera. Um, so 
those are the couple, kind of the two top line things that, that come to mind immediately. I know I've seen some consternation about the challenges of relocating a species this hard to get a hold of and just the risks of moving ones that are kind of rare. How founded are those concerns? I think they're founded. I mean, it's always a concern. And, and you know, we're, we're wildlife people. We certainly don't want to do any harm to individuals if we can help it. And we certainly don't want to do any harm to any of the source populations either. We, we certainly think it's it's doable, but we need to be careful on all those fronts. And we have a lot of details in our current plan that we think are important. We've put together a team of experts from around the world uh, to help us try to figure out, you know, how exactly to do this and to work out all those details. And, you know, hopefully most of that's correct. And if it's not, we'll, we'll learn fast on the fly and be able to make this work out successfully. Jake Ivan is a wildlife research scientist with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. He spoke with our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, about plans to reintroduce the wolverine. An updated strategy should be out in the coming weeks. And we are back in a moment with a group of people who will make you feel positively productive by comparison. Congress. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Terra Firma, the podcast that brings you sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman, is back. Season two offers a chance for us to see the ways in which nature allows our wildness. I believe the earth is so glad you are here. Find Terra Firma from Colorado Public Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. The U.S. House of Representatives left for recess last week without moving on a bill to provide foreign military aid let alone deal with border security. Those issues join a long list this Congress has not addressed. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports the stagnation in the House has left many Colorado lawmakers frustrated. The Senate worked for months to craft a bipartisan foreign military aid package and passed it before the current recess. The House broke a day early for recess without Republican leaders bringing that bill to the floor or offering an alternative. Democratic Representative Jason Crow says if a vote had been held on the military aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, it would pass overwhelmingly. That's something even Republicans opposed to additional Ukraine aid admit would happen. The problem is, is that Speaker Johnson will not put that vote to the floor because his extreme members are preventing him from doing so. You have a couple of dozen people that are holding everybody else hostage. The 118th Congress has been historically unproductive, with fewer than 40 bills that have become law. It's also kicked the can on several must-pass pieces of legislation, from the budget and the farm bill to the reauthorization of the Federal Aviation Administration and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse says even many non-controversial bipartisan bills aren't getting votes. That is a intentional choice Republicans have made because, unfortunately, in their view, bipartisanship is no longer uh, something to be applauded. It's not surprising to hear Democrats complain about the Republican majority, but the criticism is also coming from the other side of the aisle. Texas Republican Representative Chip Roy vented his frustration on the House floor last November. One thing. I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing, one, that I can go campaign on and say we did. One. The level of frustration from rank-and-file members about the lack of direction and all that has not happened is palpable. When asked if Republican leadership were flying by the seat of their pants, 
This is what Florida Republican Representative Byron Donald said. Oh no, we ain't flying. Right now we like crashed. This is Democratic Representative Brittany Pedersen's first term in Congress. She knew there was some level of dysfunction coursing through the marble halls of the Capitol. Still, she says she's surprised at how bad it really is. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a sitcom and everybody is just doing ridiculous acts and trying to get on TV and not doing the work. And it's incredibly frustrating. It's also pushing some lawmakers to the exits. Colorado Republican Representative Ken Buck is retiring after the end of this year. He admits Congress hasn't been productive on meaningful legislation. But it's a small majority and it's hard to get a lot of stuff through at this point. So. The Republican margin in the House is down to just two votes. And Buck also points to divided government as a hurdle. You always have uh, more success when you have uh, unified government. The, the White House, the Senate, the House, all from the same party. Yeah. With, with decent majorities in the Senate and the House. So right now we've got divided government. But outside experts say it's not divided government that's the problem, but a divided Republican Party, particularly in the House. To keep the gavel, Speaker Mike Johnson can't risk the kind of revolt that ousted his predecessor last year. You have two wings of the party which can't agree on some very, very basic things. And when you have that, you don't really have a functional majority. And so we don't have a functioning Congress. That's Joshua Huter, a senior fellow with the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. He says House Republicans are trying to behave like a partisan majority when they just functionally aren't. There is a segment on the right wing of the Republican Party who is denying the sort of like center-right, center-left coalitions that always come together to pass appropriations bills, to pass National Defense Authorization Acts, to pass FAA reauthorizations, all of these kind of important regular governing bills. They're not allowing that to form. And that's really the breakdown. A presidential election year also isn't helping congressional productivity. Already, Donald Trump worked to kill Republican support for a bipartisan border security compromise, letting him campaign on the issue. Still, Seth Maskett, professor of political science at the University of Denver, says Congress tends to look pretty chaotic right up until the moment it gets something done. There have been times when even a very divided Congress has proven able to deal with pretty emergent issues. Uh, it doesn't look great on that score right now. The next big test awaits the House when it returns, whether Congress can pass some funding bills in less than a week. Otherwise, congressional inaction will lead to a partial government shutdown after March 1st. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Still to come, United CEO on the airline's pandemic gamble. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When it comes to prosecuting hate crimes, Colorado didn't have a great track record. Did you just call me a In this bonus episode of Systemic, we look at how two women tested Colorado bias motivated crime statute. Look for Systemic from Colorado Public Radio everywhere you listen. Pilots at United train in Denver at the airline's campus in Central Park, and now more of them can do so. United cut the ribbon Thursday on its new flight training building, which will house 12 additional simulators. Surprisingly, perhaps, the idea for the facility was born early in the pandemic as air travel tanked. CEO Scott Kirby told a crowd of employees and journalists about his gamble. 
I love the story, but it also is relevant to this uh, building because the first time our executive team got together was actually that summer in 2020. And we all flew into Chicago. We went to one of the clubs. The clubs were all closed. So we commandeered one of the clubs and we sat around the room. And the whole point of the day was we think there's going to be a full recovery in travel demand and no one else thinks it. What are we missing? Are we wrong? Um, and we spent a whole day talking about that. We convinced ourselves at the end of the day that we were right and that there was going to be a full recovery in travel demand. And particularly with all of our competitors deciding to shrink, it was a once-in-history uh, opportunity for us to leapfrog everyone else and move to a leadership position that would just be unassailable and nobody could ever catch up to us. Uh, and in fact, that was the day that we greenlit the work to start the design work on this building. That day, in the middle of summer, we didn't know how much it would cost. We didn't know for sure how many simulator bays. We didn't know what kind of airplanes we were going to buy. Uh, but we greenlit it because it's a three to four year lead time project to get this done. And that was when we decided to do it. I can remember when, when someone called CAE, who builds these wonderful simulators, uh, and said, we want to buy more simulators. At the time, of course, everyone else around the world was calling and canceling simulators because they were shrinking. And they kind of laughed and like, ah, ha, ha, that's not funny. Gallows humor is not funny right now. I'm like, no, 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 we're serious. <laughs> We actually want to buy more simulators. But it really was the start of what is has put us in this position today. And we followed that up with, we built a new baggage system here in Denver, more gates here in Denver, more gates in Newark, new baggage system in Houston, the biggest uh, in-flight training center for flight attendants down in Houston. And that, of course, culminated with what are by far the largest aircraft orders in the history of aviation. We now have about 800 airplanes uh, still on order. Even with some of the delays that have happened with Boeing recently, we're still taking about 100 narrow-body aircraft per year of deliveries. And starting at the end of this year, we'll be taking about two per month of wide-body aircraft. Each of those, by the way, is about double what any other airline in history has done. We're taking about twice as many wide-bodies and about twice as many narrow-bodies as anyone has done in history, which is why this training center has become really the center of the universe for United Airlines. The most complicated thing you have to do to really grow a big airline that flies multiple fleet types is all the work of bringing pilots in, getting the best, highest, most qualified pilots uh, in the front door, training them, keeping your standards, safety standards, and all of your quality and efficiency standards as high as they've ever been while upping the number, but also doing all the captain upgrades that happen, all the fleet transitions, all the while bringing all 16,000 of those uh, pilots back every year to sit in simulators uh, and get recurrent training and get up to speed on all the latest that's happening. Um, and doing that really is the most complicated thing that we're having to do at United. And it's a testament to our team for what they're doing. It's also a testament to a great partnership that we have with Denver and the state of Colorado. There's a reason the largest training center in the world uh, is here in Denver. Uh, and it really is, I was talking to the mayor before, you know, it really is the kind of place where everyone works together to create a better community, to create economic opportunity. Uh, you know, when I meet with people in this state, I don't know, unless somebody tells me in advance that they're Democrat or Republican, I wouldn't know. An excerpt of Scott Kirby's remarks Thursday in Denver. He's CEO of United. The airline says it hired 2,300 pilots last year and 300 so far this year. The new flight training building here means hundreds of new jobs, according to United. Pandemic aid is no doubt part of the picture, with United receiving more than $11 billion in loans and grants. That figure comes from the Airline Pilots Association. 
Let's take a moment now to remember singer-songwriter Randy Sparks, who died this month at 90. He founded the New Christie Minstrels, a fixture on the 1960s folk music scene. It was Sparks who insisted his bandmate, Henry John Duchendorf Jr., needed a shorter stage name. We'll let music journalist G. Brown pick up the story. Randy claims he told John that John Duchendorf was not going to fit on the marquee. And John, to Randy's telling, said, this is my father's name. I will never change my name. I will not dishonor him that way. Mm-hmm. And in Randy's office, the New Christie Minstrels had just had a hit called Denver, written about our city. It was a very minor hit nationally, but here locally, uh, charted highly, was number one on KIMN. Anyway, the sheet music was hanging behind Randy's desk, and someone looked at it and said, yeah, you're John Denver. And Randy maintains that's how, that's how he took it. But John had a more romantic telling of it. G. Brown of the Colorado Music Experience in 2013. John Denver always claimed he adopted the surname to honor the city and state he loved. We won't take a position, but here's a nod to the late Randy Sparks, the new Christy Minstrels and their 1963 song, Denver. Just a good loving, rambling man I had fun away with the ladies Sweet daddy was my middle name Till I got to a place they call Denver I'd never been quite the same I've been to St. Louis and Abilene I rambled through many a town I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Matters. This is listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.